Nearly 90% of plant species require pollination to reproduce. Pollinators allow plants to produce one-third of the global food supply and provide half of the world's oils, fibers, and other raw materials. This is just a portion of what pollinators do for international ecosystems. Honeybees are facing a deadly pandemic of their own, the trope mite. With a 40% decrease in honeybees in 2018 alone, this mite has global implications in a world already full of food insecurity. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you so much for joining us. We are excited to welcome Dr. Samuel Ramsey, or better known as Dr. Sammy, or even Dr. Bugs. Dr. Sammy is the founder of the Ramsey Research Foundation and is a renowned entomologist specializing in insects and honeybees. How fortunate we are to welcome here, welcome him here to our program, and especially because he is located in Thailand right now. Dr. Sammy, thank you for joining us. I know it is really late for you, but before we get started, I'd like to thank the Dallas Sierra, Sierra Club for partnering with us on this program to help promote. And I must give a plug to our council also, if you're not a member, please join us. We'd love to have you as a member. Please join our engaged and informed citizenry. You can look at our website at dfwworld.org uh, for all the membership options. I'd love to meet you. Please come, please join us. Like I mentioned, Dr. S Sammy is joining us from Thailand. So it's late for him where he is studying the trope mite. Dr. Sammy completed his Bachelor of Science in Entomology from Cornell University and received his doctorate at the University of Maryland. He's a firm believer that educating the public about environmental and conservation issues, like what plagues honeybees, is key to solving it. So Dr. Sammy aims to make his research accessible and understandable by for all. He has successfully used Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube to articulate his research and inspire curiosity on the complexity of bees among the public. So this is a critical topic, and I think we've all seen in the news how critical it is, and I can't wait for this conversation. Uh, it's wonderful have, to have you with us, Dr. Sammy. Thank you again, and I will let you take it over from here. I am so glad to be here, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Ah, I am going to jump in well aware that I'm speaking to an informed and engaged group that really cares about these topics. This is one that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I've been studying insects for a long time. And when people hear me say that, they often chuckle and they're like, oh, how long could you have been studying insects? You're, you don't look like you're that old yourself. But um, when I was seven, I told my parents that I wanted to be an entomologist when I grew up. And apparently I was a pretty reliable narrator of things because that's exactly where I am more than 20 years later. And one of the groups of insects that has truly just stolen my heart, uh, it's bees. Bees are the best pollinators on the planet because of the ways that they have, uh, over evolutionary time, really grown in tandem with flowers and created this deep evolutionary relationship, a symbiosis unlike any other, which is the reason why the term pollinator pandemic should be really concerning to you. 
because there are, are numerous diseases that have been moving around the world and impacting our pollinators. And one of the worst seems to be already spreading. So let's discuss that and what can be done about it, both on my end and on yours. First, let's talk about why bees are the important organisms they are both ecologically and well, to us as human beings within our economy. The honeybee colony structure is unique in the insect world. It is a remarkable thing. They nest in large communities that in a lot of ways are like human cities. They exist in a capacity that allows them to maximize usage of resources in their environment and it is an incredible sight to see as these organisms do their work. Because of the ways that they specialize, uh, different bees have different jobs within the colony. There are nurse bees uh, who take care of the young. Uh, there are forager bees that go out and collect food. Uh, there's of course the queen who uh, is the reproductive individual in that colony. Because the bees are specialized, they can be very, very, very efficient with the work of the colony that allows them to collect huge amounts of pollen. Uh, that pollen, uh, of course, by moving that pollen from plant to plant, these plants are able to reproduce in ways that they would not be able to um, uh, aside from the help of the bees. And it also produces a huge amount of food for us. As they pollinate these plants, uh, these plants are able to produce the fruits and vegetables that we consume on a regular basis. But the bees then bring back the pollen and the nectar and stockpile a huge amount of a very valuable resource. Honey and pollen and their brood are really, really, really nutritious food sources, which is the reason why they exist in a number of different symbioses, some of them parasitic, where other creatures will try to get into the colonies and consume what these bees have been stockpiling. Now, one of the elements of this culinary, uh, colony structure that makes it so remarkable is that these organisms have, well, universal childcare. Uh, all of the developing bees inside of this colony are cared for by the nurses in this colony, which really boosts the success of these organisms in the colony structuring, which is quite exciting and quite remarkable. Uh, but it doesn't make these bees impervious they're really, really efficient, very effective, really incredible creatures. But the fact that they live in this colony structure, the fact that they're consistently interacting with their larvae and with each other allows for diseases and for parasites to spread very, very rapidly. So we've talked about what makes honeybees honeybees, but let's talk about our honeybee. Let's talk about the bee. When people talk about bees, they are typically discussing the remarkable abilities of Apis mellifera. That's the one that we refer to as the European honeybee. And there are more than 2.6 million honeybee colonies in the United States right now. We heavily value this organism. And unfortunately, it's suffering from a number of different issues that are making it really difficult to sustain large populations of these organisms in the US. Um, now, when people say save the bees, they don't mean all the bees typically. Oftentimes they mean save the bee. Uh, there are 
11 different species of honeybees, Apis mellifera, serana, indica, nuluensis, koshnikovi, nigrisinta, dorsata, laboriosa, revoligula, floria, and adreniformis. There are a lot of honeybees, uh, but Apis mellifera is the one that really is integrated into our environment in Europe. It's actually or in, uh, in Europe, uh, in the Western world in general, North America, it is the only honeybee species distributed around the world, the only one that we have in the United States. But there are more bees, plenty more bees, more than 4,000 more species of bees in North America. And so when we say save the bees, we really have to consider that we're not talking about enough of the organisms. We've got to expand this out to the native bees because though they don't have those gigantic colonies that I was talking about earlier, and so they're not quite as efficient at pollinating huge swaths of land the way that these bees are, they are still incredibly important organisms in this process. And uh, just if you were to take a moment and to get face to face with these charismatic organisms that we have here, just consider that we've got this beautiful bee right here, the pale leaf cutting bee that people rarely see up close and personal. We've got the golden sweat bee. I mean, this one, look at all of this charisma. Do you see this? Am I the only one who sees this? Look at it. Ah, it's got a lot going on here. I love collected bees. Uh, the ligated furrow bee is adorable for a number of reasons, but the fact that they jump into flowers and just swim around to get all the pollen on their bodies is incredible. They get absolutely plastered with pollen. It's adorable, but it makes them great at moving pollen from plant to plant. Uh, the, the robust sunflower bee, like this one, is one of the leafcutter bees that goes about cutting snags out of leaves that it then builds into this adorable nursery for its young. Uh, the the, the three-spotted digger bee that's able to dig holes uh, into the ground, into to soft, loamy soil, and uh, is able to raise its larvae down there. These bees never get the kind of attention that Apis mellifera does, because Apis mellifera is a powerhouse to our economy. But we have to consider that only providing our attention to Apis mellifera is problematic in the grand scheme of things. Uh, our proportional attention to this organism ends up pushing the rest of our pollinators to the margins. And so we don't actually know as much about all the issues that they're dealing with. And furthermore, the fact that uh, Apis mellifera is being raised in a lot of unsustainable ways and being managed in ways that allow for it to um, amass a number of diseases that then spread to the native bee population creates this unsustainable ecosystem that we absolutely have to consider and work on if we're going to have a sustainable ecological system of honeybees or honeybees, a sustained ecological system of bees in general. So. Why do honeybees get so much attention? 15 to $18 billion nationwide is the result of honeybees pollination services, their production of wax, their production of honey, uh, their production of uh, propolis, royal jelly, 
All of this, all of these things that we are able to get from bees, their ecological services are incredibly important. It's the reason why they are the third most economically important livestock in the United States. We consider them cattle the way that we do um, cows and pigs because of what they contribute to the environment and to our food systems. And two, more than $200 billion worldwide is the result of these organisms. Uh, they pollinate a ridiculous amount of our foods from potato, lavender, mustard, black currants, prickly pears, tangerines, onions, cashews. One day I tried to write down all of them. My arm got tired. I got really cranky before I got to the end of it, just finding out that there are more and more and more and more uh, fruits and vegetables that these organisms pollinate. And in addition to that, they also pollinate uh, the food that we feed to a lot of our livestock in order to raise them sustainably. So they are deeply embedded in our food system. Another reason why we have to make sure that we are raising them in a way that is sustainable because the impact that they have on the rest of our pollinators is something that amplifies uh, their own pandemics throughout the food chain. So, Here's something that we have to figure out if we're going to help the population of pollinators at large. We've got to figure out what's killing our bees and how to mitigate those issues. Now, a lot of people would immediately turn to me and say, Sammy, haven't you heard all the headlines? It's colony collapse disorder. But is it colony collapse disorder? Uh, colony collapse disorder was a very specific syndrome that we saw in bees for just a few years, and then it disappeared. But people have still been talking about it because colony collapse disorder wasn't something that, uh, that a lot of people generally understood. It was a buzzword that was used to encompass a bunch of ideas, uh, many of which never fully panned out. So when people see things like this, tons of dead bees in front of a colony, they call us up at the USDA and they say, I've got colony collapse disorder going on in my colony, even though we haven't seen a confirmed case of colony collapse disorder in nearly a decade now. Colony collapse disorder is not the issue. Colony collapse disorder was Genuinely, it, it seems, uh, sort of the exclamation point at the end of a long and very concerning sentence about the state of our bees. When you see a bunch of dead bees in front of a colony, that's not colony collapse disorder because the defining quality of colony collapse disorder is that the bees leave the colony in mass and they leave behind their brood, all of their babies, and the queen. And unfortunately, the queen can't take care of all of those babies herself. Uh, she's specialized in a way where she does not have the ability to do so. And so the colony collapses as a result. But why do all the bees leave the colony at the same time? When bees get sick, when they develop a communicable illness. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. They know that because they're so closely related to the other individuals in the colony, they need to get far away. They need to socially distance themselves such that they don't get the rest of the colony sick. 
Because if one bee sneezes anywhere in the colony, all the rest of the bees are gonna be vulnerable to it because of how close in proximity they are. Well, that works out great. It is really helpful for the bees to socially distance themselves under normal circumstances. The problem arises when all the bees socially distance themselves at the same time, when all the bees get sick with the same illness all at the same time. And so what colony collapse disorders seem to be is this amalgam of all of these different diseases coming together and creating an unsustainable amount of illness in a, a set of bee colonies where they were all leaving at the same time. And unfortunately, uh, this wasn't a sustainable way to particularly manage that ailment. But why do we keep talking about colony collapse disorder? I think it's because for every problem, there's a complex answer. Or for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. We strongly desire to have a very simple answer to the issues that are going on. And so when people started saying CCD, it was a great buzzword for it. But in a lot of ways, it didn't help us because it got us off the track of understanding that bees are dealing with a lot of problems at the same time. The problem is not simple and the answer is not simple. If we want to understand what is killing the bees, we have to understand that there are multiple interconnecting causes of death. Uh, and what you'll notice is that a number of these issues that are impacting our honeybees are also issues that are impacting the native bees. And so as you look at these next slides, you'll see a picture of the honeybees, if it's impacting the honeybees, you'll see the native bees as well, if it's impacting them. And what you'll find is that for a lot of these slides, you're gonna see both sets of organisms. Invasive parasites are a huge issue. One of the biggest problems for honeybees right now is Varroa destructor, uh, a parasite that is exclusive to the honeybees, uh, specifically to Apis mellifera, but it is a vector for viruses. And as the honeybees, which uh, make up this gigantic population of bees in the United States, as the honeybees get very sick with these viruses, when they visit flowers, they suck up nectar and unfortunately create a, west, a reservoir where uh, viruses that are in their body contaminate that nectar. And when native bees show up to visit these flowers and feed on these flowers, uh, it can uh, then create a reservoir that the native bees then uh, absorb these, these viruses and the viruses are a lot more potent and problematic for them. If a few bees get sick, in a colony with 60,000 or more individuals, those bees can be replaced. But if a solitary bee, like one of these leafcutter bees, dies out and the eight larvae that it was raising inside of those cells no longer have a mom to provide them with the food that they need to grow and develop, all of them die. So invasive parasites have turned out to be a huge issue for both our honeybees and our native bees. But in addition to those, we also have issues like bacteria. There are a number of bacterial diseases that have posed massive problems for honeybees. Uh, one of them, American fowl brood, is such a, such a remarkably communicable illness that we have found the best way to get rid of it is with fire. Uh, colonies that are found to have American fowl brood, uh, people are advised to actually dig a hole uh, and set the colony on fire and then bury the remains. Because we have found that attempting to treat them with antibiotics 
tends not to work. Uh, the disease spreads and kind of turns the colony into this stinky mush. Uh, and unfortunately, the spores for this uh, bacterium can survive for years and years and years, even in circumstances that we wouldn't think of as optimal. Uh, and there are several other bacterial diseases aside from those that can be transmitted uh, between honeybees and between the native bee population. There are fungi like Nosema apis that develop in the digestive system of the bees and can be spread between uh, our honeybees and bumblebees and other bee species and can give them something similar, uh, something that's been likened to bee dysentery. There are viruses, a number of virus species, uh, one of which is called deformed wing virus uh, that causes the bees to develop uh, these puny non-functional wings, which makes them totally ineffective at doing the things that they need to do uh, in order to uh, protect their colonies, uh, protect their young, and to feed themselves and their babies. Uh, it is uh, a lethal disease that they can develop. Uh, so are ailments such as Lake Sinai virus, which you see here, that uh, causes the malformation of the larvae and their eventual death. And these viruses can build up in these reservoirs like flowers. Uh, and if we do not manage our honeybee populations well enough, and they become these reservoirs of disease, they can spread it to our native bee populations. Pesticides are a huge issue. Uh, there are a number of different chemicals that uh, are sprayed that can be really problematic for bees, but they're not often the ones that we think of. People frequently, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, they think, oh, uh, these pesticides that are directly targeted at insects, it makes sense for you to think that an insecticide is going to be the worst enemy of the bees. But when we look at what's ending up inside of these colonies, most frequently, it's these combinations of fungicides that are uh, on the, uh, the, the, the coatings of the seeds. Seeds come pre-treated with these fungicides from large factory farming companies. Uh, and these fungicides make it into the plants. They are systemic toxins uh, that get into the pollen, get into the nectar, the bees collect it, bring it back to the colony. Uh, fungicides, herbicides, uh, things of that nature can be really problematic for the bees because they have a gut microbiome that is impacted by what they consume. And the imbalance in that can be really problematic for them. Poor land management practices have plagued bees for quite some time now because we've taken land that they would normally be able to, uh, to seek out forage uh, such that they can have a really healthy diet. And we've turned it into land where there is nothing available to them to eat. Uh, this even goes down to uh, our own lawns. Our lawns are typically just this jade wasteland where there is only grass. Grass produces nothing of value to the honeybees, but for some reason we value how it looks even more than uh, the life-sustaining flowers that they look to uh, as their source of food. Poor nutrition is related to our poor land management practices because when they can't go out and seek multiple kinds of pollen and nectar, they end up feeding on just one kind, and that's not good for the colony. No matter how nutritious that one kind of pollen is, it doesn't have the full complement of nutrients that they need to sustain themselves. And inbreeding which is primarily a problem for our honeybees, uh, as many of the honeybee colonies 
the queens come from the same queen breeders, same queen breeders year after year after year, dwindling the genetic toolbox that our bees have to feel, fend off issues that show up. Uh, as well as climate change. As the climate changes around our bees, native bees are heavily impacted by the fact that the flowers that they depend on are showing up earlier than the bees are coming out of their winter hibernation, or the bees are coming out too late in their winter hibernation and missing very important spring flowers that show up but are ephemeral. And finally, socioeconomic factors. Uh, the fact that beekeeping is becoming more and more expensive. And so now we are concentrating bees typically in the hands of wealthier and wealthier individuals. Uh, there are fewer uh, circumstances where bees are distributed broadly in the environment, uh, but oftentimes honeybee populations are confined to areas where people have more money. But so, now that we've talked about the full set of issues that bees are dealing with, let's narrow it down to what is actually causing the pandemic issues that bees deal with. The organism that you're looking at now, well, you're currently staring into the face of evil. This creature right here is Varroa destructor sitting atop the head of a developing honeybee. This is a parasite that comes from Southeast Asia where I happen to be right now. And this parasite has moved all around the world and achieved a nearly cosmopolitan distribution in record time. And everywhere that it has shown up, it has caused the uh, absolute and quite remarkable destruction of honeybee populations. Varroa destructor showed up in the United States in 1987. Within 10 years, we had lost more than 99.98% of our uh, unmanaged honeybee colonies. And the ones that exist now are concentrated in the hands of people who are typically able to manage the size of these populations through the input of pesticides into the colonies, putting us on this unsustainable pesticide treadmill that we need to figure out how to get off of. Uh, recently, uh, I conducted work that has shown that we have not actually understood well how this parasite works. Uh, we thought that it was feeding on the bee's blood. Uh, my work has shown that it's actually feeding on the bee's liver. And so what we thought for a long time is that it was sort of this strange little vampire. We didn't think that its impact could actually be quite as large as it is because our thought process was that it was draining out a small amount of the bee's blood, sort of like a mosquito on you. But it turns out that it's uh, more like if a mosquito landed on you, sucked out your liver, and then flew away with that. So instead of being a, a little vampire, it's kind of a werewolf feeding on the flesh of our bees. And this rethinking is allowing us to better understand these bees and even better target our efforts to control, or sorry, we're able to better understand the parasitic mites and even learning how to better control uh, these organisms as they attack our bees. Because one of the things that makes our application of pesticides so unsustainable in honeybee colonies is that we are putting these, uh, these chemicals into the colony that are typically absorbed into the wax, sometimes can be absorbed into the honey, into the pollen, uh, and they're getting into the environment and into the food chain. But there's one option that was considered early on. If we could get something into the bee's diet, if we could feed them sugar syrup that has something in it that will get into the bee's blood. And as the mites are feeding on it, they can get a lethal dose of this chemical that is lethal to the mites, but not to the bees. And that idea never worked. And the reason that we're finding out that it never worked 
was because we've had the wrong idea about how this parasite feeds since it was discovered more than 100 years ago, or nearly 100 years ago. And so now that um, the, the research that I've been conducting has actually shown what this parasite is feeding on, we've got an opportunity to take things in a different direction. We may even be able to create a more sustainable, better targeted system for attacking the Varroa mite. But while the Varroa mite's name is still on our tongue, while we are still figuring out how to deal with the current pollinator pandemic of Varroa, which has moved around the world, we have another one that has shown up that we are deeply concerned with. And it has not yet shown up in the United States, but it has been showing up in country after country after country and creating so many problems. This organism is called Tropolelaps mercedesi. And I know that is a mouthful, uh, but the organism didn't even have a common name. Uh, it was not given much attention because it only existed in um, what are typically termed developing nations. And because they weren't impacting large economies, we kind of ignored this organism. I've actually recently given it a, a, a common name. I've referred to it as the tropy mite because that's a lot easier to pronounce and maybe it'll get more people talking about uh, how problematic this organism has been. It's an emerging threat to pollinator health that is a, actually a lot more daunting and concerning than Varroa. Varroa's common, uh, Varroa's scientific name is actually Varroa destructor. And that may sound like this melodramatic, uh, scary name, but Varroa is incredibly destructive to honeybees, but it does not actually feed on other groups of bees. And so its impact on other bees is indirect as viruses that it transmits to honeybees get transmitted to those bees down the food chain. But the tropolelaps mite is different. It is the least species-specific honeybee parasite that we know of. Uh, it goes after all the different groups of honeybees, but we've also found it, very concerningly, on native bees. We found it on carpenter bees, which is really remarkable because the rest of the, 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 the large honeybee parasites that we have dealt with, we've never found on solitary bees. Uh, they don't have the capacity to exist uh, in both the complex honeybee colony structure and the uh, much simpler and smaller solitary bee context where a bee will fly from flower to flower and bring back food to just one offspring that it raises uh, and then feeds that one until it's old enough and then it closes that cell and then feeds another and another and another. Well, these parasites are able to invade that system and even feed on them. And so if it were introduced into the United States, it could easily become an issue that is broadly extended to our pollinators. And that's the reason why I'm here in Thailand right now. I have uprooted everything that I was working on. I talked to the United States Department of Agriculture on several occasions, telling them we are about to make a huge mistake. We waited for Varroa destructor to arrive in the United States before we studied it. We let it move all around the world. We let it uh, travel outside of uh, Southeast Asia where it originally came from. And we waited until it got here and then we began to study it. And that didn't work out. We uh, similar, uh, there was a similar situation to COVID-19. Uh, a lot of study of COVID didn't happen until it got to us. But imagine, if, if we had studied COVID-19 uh, years in advance, we already knew 
how to to um, how to treat this ailment. We didn't have to go through all the back and forth of whether masks were effective or not. We didn't have to go through all the back and forth of how to develop uh, a vaccine. Imagine if all of that had happened well in advance of the pandemic, how much time could have been saved, how many lives could have been saved. Well, that's why I thought that it was integral that I worked to convince uh, the USDA that this was a good idea. Um, they uh, have helped to send me over here to Thailand. I had to actually raise a fair bit of money because uh, the budget for these sorts of studies was very, very, very low. And so uh, I raised funding through crowdsourcing. Uh, people supported this study like I was running for president. And now I'm able to conduct this work here. Um, and there's a lot that we need to understand about this creature because it is spreading outside of its native range. It was originally only present in this region of the world, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, the Malay archipelago, and then it started spreading into China, Korea, uh, into India. Uh, it's now in the Middle East, in Iran. It's now outside of Asia. It's in Oceania. It's in Papua New Guinea. And it seems uh, there, there seems to be nothing currently bounding its spread. So we need to understand this creature. We need to understand what it is doing to the pollinators that it's currently feeding on. But right now, one of the biggest issues is that the struggle of bee brood is kind of a secret. So much of what happens, happens inside of this tiny closed system. Everything happens in complete darkness under the capping. Uh, the bees conceal their larvae under a wax cell capping. And so I've created a system where you can actually peer inside of the cells. This is my research at work right now. You can see this varroa mite feeding on the fat body of the bees, the liver of the bees. And we understand the things that that causes through our time studying Varroa, how it leads to the death of the bees through weakening their immune system, transmitting viruses, causing them to desiccate, disrupting their ability to synthesize proteins. But we have not learned that about the trophy mite. This one that you're looking at right now, this is the first video ever captured of the trophy mite actually in its natural setting under uh, inside of the cell with these bees. The actions that it takes, the things that it does are integral to us understanding how to control this organism. And I had to invent an entire system to actually peer into this dark system and see what's going on with these creatures. So we can answer questions like, what happens when trophy feeds on bees? Uh, wh what does it cause aside from transmission of viruses and developmental abnormalities? And so I've been looking into these really important problems and seeing how we can answer them because so many open questions exist from the fact that we have not studied this creature. What part of the bee is it eating? We don't know if it's the bee's blood or if it's the, the, the liver of the bee. What happens when the varroa mite and the trophy mite start feeding on the same bee, when they're inside of the same colonies together? How do we manage the damage and diseases caused by these creatures to the organisms that we want to preserve and protect. And how do these parasites spread? We have to learn that. So I've been working on a, a bunch of those questions as we speak. You're watching a video right now of me actually um, 
applying a pesticide treatment, uh, a novel means of treating this parasite right now, there is not a single chemical registered for the treatment of this parasite anywhere in the world. And so the work that I'm conducting right now, I think is very important such that we can approach this potential pandemic with knowledge. So you're seeing the way the bees respond to the application of formic acid, which I've just slid into the mouth of the colony. Uh, the bees get very excited about it, uh, but they actually tolerate it pretty well. Uh, I've also been looking for non-chemical means of controlling this organism. And so we've been using uh, heating systems that will actually heat the colony to a temperature that is uh, just below the threshold where the bees uh, will be negatively impacted by it, but just above the threshold uh, where the mites will die uh, as a result of the usage of heat. And that will provide us with multiple ways of treating this organism, chemical and non-chemical, uh, should it arrive in the U.S., and ways for uh, the countries that currently have these mites to treat these organisms and protect their honeybee populations and potentially reduce the spread of these creatures such that they never arrive in our country. But enough about what I'm doing. Um, before I end this presentation, I'd like to talk to you about what you can do and what we can do broadly uh, in community science. So be a good beekeeper. Don't just be a beekeeper. Beekeepers who keep bees and allow for them to just develop huge volumes of virus in their blood that they're spreading around the ecosystem, they're not helping anybody. People saying, uh, I'm, I wanna save the bees. I'm gonna get a few bee colonies. And they leave them over in a corner of their backyard. They never open the colony. They don't inspect to see how many uh, varroa mites are in the colony and they don't reduce the populations of these parasites. They are not helping anyone. If you're going to be a beekeeper, join a beekeeping group, learn everything you can about beekeeping, and be an effective beekeeper for the ethics of these bees. Because what we know right now is that the majority of beekeepers do not treat for Varroa. They allow the populations of the mite to get large enough that the colony collapses and dies, and then they just get more bees. And that is not a sustainable system. It is a deeply problematic one. Uh, and if you want to learn more about treating bees, uh, there is, you can type in tools for varroa management into Google. Uh, that will pull up a wonderful PDF through the Honey Bee Health Coalition that will tell you everything that you need to know about how to manage varroa populations. Another really good idea, when you see a pollinator, let it be. I know people get really nervous when they see these huge carpenter bees that are chewing on wood. Know that they're not like termites. Uh, they're not going to weaken the structural integrity of your house. Uh, they are not dangerous. Uh, they can look like they're, they're scary, but they're just trying to figure out who you are and what you're up to. They're not gonna chase you down. They're not gonna sting you. There is already an answer. Let them be. Oh, let them be. <laughs> and give a bee a home. There are a number of options out there for bees uh, to nest, but we have actually ruined a lot of places where bees can live and we need to give back now by giving them a home. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but too many bees don't have a place where they can lay their head. So let's do something about that. Why don't you house a homeless bee? You can build a bee house, you can purchase a bee house, or you can just go out and stick some straws in a fence and watch how bees will move in immediately. House some homeless bees and rewild your yard. 
you will be surprised by the impact that it has. If you can turn your backyard into a pollinator sanctuary, uh, bees out here in the factory farming system often have one kind of pollen to consume and it is bad for their nutrition. But if you do this with your backyard, if you plant a bunch of forage for your bees, oh, the wonders that will happen and all the incredible things that you will attract. It is quite remarkable. And support pollinator research. Uh, check out things like my garden of a thousand bees. Discovering the secret life of bees took me on a journey I was not expecting. <laughs> Uh, shameless plug, but this is actually a documentary that I got to work on with PBS. Um, and if we're going to support study of pollinators, we also have to understand pollinators well. So uh, check out uh, My Garden of a Thousand Bees on PBS. Learn a, a bunch about not just the bee populations, but what you can do to support them and grow a pollinator garden yeah. in your backyard. Uh, and please spread the word about how we can help pollinators because they need all the help that they can get. What can you do? A lot. Thank you so much for your time and attention. <laughs> I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Wow. I want to just quickly jump in. Um, for everyone on the, on the line, my name is Kirsten Cullenberg. I'm the Director of Programs here at the World Affairs Council. Dr. Sammy, thank you very much for taking that time for that presentation. I took three pages of notes, some of which um, the, 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 the notes that stick out to me are save all the bees because yes. I, like, I, I wrote that down about three minutes into your presentation because if I see something that's this big flying at me, my natural instinct is to freak out. And so it's really nice to hear from you on different strategies that we can take as we exist in our environment to share our environment. I know that there's yes. been a large push recently to re um, kind of stress the importance of native lawns. These were all yes. questions that I was going to ask you, and I'm so happy <laughs> that you came around to address them. So very quickly before I open it up for the questions that we've had submitted through our Q&A, and please keep submitting them, I want to you, you said you, you've been working with the USDA and with the Department of Agriculture mm -hmm. um, in the yep. United States. Um, how can we begin leaning on our policymakers? Um, is this on their radar at all? And what can we do as informed citizens to stress its importance to the people that make big decisions in our country and around the world? Thank you so much for asking that question. There's a great question to ask here and one that we certainly need to be considering in this time. Our politicians are not going to pay attention to anything that is not the key issue that's going to be related to getting them reelected. So until we turn this into something that they know is important to us broadly as the general public, it is not going to reach the level of importance to them where they advocate for it and they legislate for it. Um, right now, it's not on the radar. Um, President Barack Obama worked hard to establish uh, a pollinator protection plan. Uh, he actually worked with some of my collaborators at the University of Maryland while I was still at the University of Maryland to uh, establish this, which was really exciting. Um, unfortunately, uh, the the next president, uh, there, there's been sort of this system of vendetta between presidents where the next one feels like the things the last one did have to be fully undone. And so uh, we've lost a lot of ground in that area. Uh, there's a reason why I had to take to GoFundMe 
to raise enough money for this project such that it could happen. And I hope that in the future, this doesn't have to be the case, but we need to support uh, pollinate research and we need to make sure that our, um, our elected members in Congress know that that is important to us. Yeah. It was interesting some of the parallels that you drew between what is happening in the bee population and what we experienced as a global society when COVID hit. Um, you know, if only we had been a little bit more prepared, if only we were actively li listening to scientists and following their advice. Um, so I guess my question from that is, it seems like this, you're talking about some of the different treatments you're testing currently, liquid pesticides, heat, ap <laughs> heat applications. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of like a vaccine that you're developing right now. Is that right? Mm -hmm. how, how is that process? Uh, where do you get the idea? How do you approach that process? Yes. So when people were trying to develop vaccines for COVID-19, the main thing that it required was knowledge of this virus. And a wonderful thing about it is that we have a system where we share information um, in science such that everybody has access to it. And so what we were trying to achieve here is enough of an understanding of the genetic code of COVID that we could tip the body off to its presence uh, and allow people to kind of get a jump on uh, protecting itself before the virus actually arrives. Now with honeybee, that's more difficult to do. So we're trying to generate a system where as these parasites are arriving in the colony, they're encountering uh, a chemical that negatively impacts them or something like heat that negatively impacts them, that destroys their ability to reproduce or uh, actually drives down the numbers uh, that are alive within the population. But something that was very, very, very important in developing the vaccine was ensuring that the vaccine was safe and effective. It doesn't matter if it wards off COVID and also makes people sick in the process. Well, with the, what I'm trying to develop here in Thailand, I'm looking at every possible health metric for the honeybees to ensure that uh, placing liquid formic into the colony isn't causing more maladies for the bees than they're already dealing with with the parasite that they currently have. So let's talk a little bit more about um, the international aspect of this. We have a question submitted from one of our attendees. Thank you, Alfie. Um, she says, you have extensive amount of research experience internationally. How would you say that various international communities and their practices impact this bee pandemic and potential new pandemic? Are there techniques or policies being developed abroad that could be implemented further here? Oh, wonderful question. Our ecosystems are no longer the discrete sort of isolated ecosystems that they once were. As a result of international travel, uh, our ecosystem has become a global ecosystem. And so the things that people do in other countries actually do relate to the health of our populations of bees here in the United States, or well, where you are in the United States, where I am in Thailand. Um, and so beekeepers, uh, here in Thailand, because they have 11 species uh, of honeybees available to them, um, well, uh, four native species of honeybees in Thailand, 11 species in Southeast Asia and Asia in general, uh, that 
kind of allows for them to do a lot of experimenting. And sometimes beekeepers will take brood, they'll take baby bees from one species of honeybee and they'll put it into the colony of Apis mellifera or Apis serrana. And unfortunately, uh, even though that can bolster the population of bees in that colony, it also brings whatever parasites those bees had into an entirely new species context where that parasite can then jump over to uh, a host that has no defenses against it and it can just start spreading like wildfire. And so, yes, there are uh, actions that people take uh, in other countries that can be fairly detrimental uh, to the bees, but there are also things that we can learn from. Uh, I learned this liquid formic technique from some beekeepers off in a secluded forest uh, in the outskirts of the Lampun region of Thailand. Um, this was something that they had been doing for years and years and years. They were taking chunks of wood, soaking them in formic acid, industrial strength formic acid, which is used in their rubber plantation, and then sliding it into the front of their colony. And it aerosolizes and kills the mites that are inside of the colony. And it, it wasn't a, a commercially available application or anything of the sort. It was just something they were doing to try to protect their bees. So we can learn a lot from people if we're willing to invest time uh, in learning with these populations and talking to people that uh, we oftentimes don't have a lot of conversations with. The world seems to be getting smaller and smaller every day. And so having those conversations um, through, di through different means. And of course, you have used the internet as a way to communicate your research and your work. But we can also, as citizens, use um, techniques that we are seeing abroad and we're finding on online uh, in our own homes. And so speaking of that, we had a couple of questions here about if you were to open your own bee hotel hmm. in your backyard. Mm -hmm. What about, what's the ideal placement for that? We have some people who are concerned that they live in such a, um, an urban area with a small yard that might not be effective. Can you speak to something on that so we can have some action taken after this webinar? I certainly can. Um, I wondered about the same thing. I, I live in Washington, D.C. I have the tiniest yard possible. <laughs> and uh, I have put out three honeybee, or three um, native bee hotels uh, of different sorts in different areas of this tiny yard and they have just been booming. The populations grow so rapidly. Bees are incredible, as I said earlier at the beginning of my presentation, at utilizing the resources around them. Uh, if you give them um, just a place where they can build a home, they will use it. Even if you have a small yard, even if it's dry in the area, even if it's extremely hot, if it rains a lot, you may get a different species of bee. Uh, there may be some bees that can't live in that area, but you will have some. Uh, there are, uh, uh, Pat actually asked the question, could you please repeat how many bee species are in North America? There are 4,400 species of bees in wow. North America. There are plenty that can live in your tiny yard and will love it. Yeah, I, I, I must admit to being cripplingly scared of bees, and which makes me the perfect person to ask these questions. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm taking the, the lessons you're giving us here, mm -hmm. and I need to really rethink how I approach the bee population. Because, you know, you hear all the time, save the bees. And what does that yeah. really mean? Um, mm -hmm. And so, so thank you for that. We have um, just a few minutes left, about eight minutes. So I'm going to just kind of start rapid firing some of these questions that we're getting. Yeah, for sure. Diane uh, Lowe I, asks. But, 
Kirsten, uh, just for a moment, if, if I may, uh, what you just brought up there is something that I am certain other people here are feeling. So if I could just address that for a moment. Um, people have the impression that bees are out for their ill. They know that bees have a stinger and they think that bees chase people down and sting them. Two things to keep in mind. One thing is that the stinger is to be used as an, a, a, a weapon of last resort. The bee dies after it stings you. And so it does not desire in any way to chase you down and to sting you. There is no benefit to them hunting you down. Uh, but the problem is that a lot of people don't have the ability to distinguish between bees and wasps. Mm -hmm. They see a yellow stripey thing and they assume it's oh, a bee. Uh, and it, it, I, I hear people tell me all the time, oh, I was cutting my lawn. Uh, I ran over a bee colony. I got stung a ton of times. It was terrible. Now I'm afraid of bees. Those were yellow jackets, sweetie. I, I promise you, those were yellow jackets you ran over uh, and they came after you and they were able to sting you multiple times because they're yellow jackets. But honeybees don't want to sting you. Um, they're actually very docile. And if you've ever seen the Texas Bee Works um, Instagram page, mm -hmm. where there's this woman going around scooping up bees out of compost bins with her hands, uh, you'll learn that there are a lot of bee populations that are very, very docile. So just throwing that out there, uh, but I'm ready for the rapid fire. Yeah, I see those those videos of people handling bees with their hands. And I just, I, I don't understand how, but I'm learning a little more how here. Um, okay, so Diane asks, um, your work is inspiring, but at the same time, the challenge seems fairly overwhelming. I think there are a lot of challenges like that in the world right now. But does shifting to only growing organically from seed to table offer a way to slow the decline of bees health? We talked a little bit about pesticides and how that impacts bees health. Um, shifting, so I think it is helpful for us to take a moment, take a deep breath, and remember we can't do everything ourselves, mm -hmm. but we can do something. Everybody can do something, and if everybody does something, then we can fix this problem. I mean, it doesn't even have to be everybody doing something. If most people do something, if a lot of people do something, but don't get this analysis paralysis where you feel like there are so many things I can do, I don't know where to start. Start with what you can do. Um, your lawn, if you can just let flowers grow in your lawn, if you can get past this idea that people have that by uh, allowing dandelions to exist in their lawn, they are a failure as a homeowner. That is not true. Uh, genuinely, I wish more people thought that there were failures as homeowners if they have nothing but green grass growing because that's not helpful to the organisms that are living around them. Um, but another thing that you can do is avoid using things like weed killers on your lawn. They are terrible for your bees. Uh, and if you uh, can support um, uh, local beekeepers uh, who are producing honey sustainably, um, uh, support these individuals at farmer's markets who are doing this farm to table sort of thing that you're seeing here uh, and support organic farmers. That is really helpful for honeybee populations as well. You mentioned earlier that some beekeepers, you know, you said, don't just be a beekeeper, but be a good beekeeper. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of beekeepers here in Texas. Texas honey is incredible. So I do also encourage everyone to buy local honey from farmer's markets if you can. Being a good bee beekeeper, you said, how accessible is it mm -hmm. for people who take up beekeeping to treat for Varroa and for, uh, you know, we don't, we're not currently facing uh, the tropimite here in America, but how accessible are those, are, is treatment for average, your average beekeeper? Hmm. <sighs> um, so 
I showed a slide that oftentimes confuses people um, mm -hmm. that simply says so socioeconomic issues. Um, there are a lot of people who get priced out of beekeeping because it's sometimes not accessible uh, to have to spend money on, uh, uh, some beekeepers have to end up treating their colonies three or four times per year, times per year, uh, depending on whether they're in an area where the bees are producing brood year round, like in Texas. And so it can be an expensive affair. And oftentimes people undertake it uh, after they have retired and they have uh, this expendable income that they can utilize, or if they have come into a large amount of money or wealthy to begin with. But if you don't have much money, it can be expensive to keep bees. Um, something that can be very effective is joining a local beekeeping group. Every state has multiple local beekeeping groups and a state beekeeping group. These beekeeping groups uh, sometimes can share the cost of treatments. They can all go in together and buy a bunch of treatments and then distribute them for usage within. Uh, that is one reason why I constantly advocate for being a part of a local beekeeping group. I cannot stress enough how important that is uh, for sustainable beekeeping. One other question we have submitted in the chat from Stephen Penrose says, can you say something about whether there is interest in the private sector? There are obviously agricultural firms which have an interest in the health of the honeybee population, but does this have to be a government effort or is there private sector interest as well? There is certainly private sector interest. Uh, a little known company um, called Monsanto that you probably mm -hmm. never heard about. A little is known actually, company, no big yeah, deal. Little known, little known, no big deal. They're actually very, very, very interested in investing in this problem because they are well aware that if they can figure out a way to control Roa and trophy mites, oh, the amount of money that that will bring into the system is quite remarkable. But there are also really small mom and pop systems. Uh, the heating system that I'm actually working with here in Thailand was invented by uh, a backyard beekeeper who decided that he wanted to be involved in fixing this problem. And I was so impressed and so excited to see the ingenuity um, that I brought four of these systems with me here to Thailand and have been uh, using them on colonies. There are people in other countries. There's a, a Swiss uh, honeybee heating system that actually sends heat to individual cells inside of the colony instead of heating the entire colony all at once. So there's a lot of private sector interest, but it oftentimes takes a rather large influx of money for you to create something that has a good distribution network and is commercially viable. Money makes the world go round, as you noted yes. when you were kicking off your research. So I want to thank you very much for taking the well, time today. We are at our, our hour, um, and I want to thank our audience for joining. Today is Earth Day. This matters not just today, but every single day. We at the World Affairs Council know that issues are interconnected. And so if you can take um, some time today to advocate for the, for this issue or any other conservation issue you care about, please take that time. It matters so much that we take care of the world we live in. Um, from us at the World Affairs Council, thank you very much. I'd like to encourage you all to become a member if you're not already a member of the World Affairs Council. We exist as a community of engaged citizens um, who have conversations with each other on the important issues. I am a member and I hope that you will join us as well. Visit our website at dfwworld.org membership for more information or just chat with us. We're happy to answer any questions you might have.
Uh, thank you all very much. I want to give one final quick shout out to um, the, my colleague, Bethany Dunn, Programs Manager here at the World Affairs Council, who is running her very first webinar for the World Affairs Council today. So thank Ooh. you very much, Bethany. Good job. And uh, Dr. Sammy, it was a pleasure. I hope that everyone will follow you in your research. Um, keep doing what you're doing, fighting for not just bees, but for us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you giving me this platform to tell more people about how important our bees are.